The next topic that we want to discuss is the topic of worship. Uh, worship uh, is more specifically what should happen during worship services. So the previous sermon was, eh, most people would agree with. This sermon gets a bit more controversial. Third sermon, I'll probably get chucked over that hedge. So uh, we're, uh, we're working through difficult things, but that's okay. So we're going to start by defining worship itself. The concept of worship is to ascribe worth to something. To express honor and praise unto something as being worthy to receive it. It comes out of a, in English, the word comes out of the word worthship, an old English word that means to give worth worth to something. When we stand before God, we, we, uh, we give him worth. The, 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 the one who approaches God is a master, like the dog that approaches his master's hand. He's, he's, he sees his master as worthy. He's, he's worthy of my affections and my attentions and, and my submission and so on. And so I want to ascribe him worth. Okay, so we, we call that worship, to ascribe honor and praise Onto something. You see, it is the natural tendency of human beings to honor things in and around themselves. We do it all the time. It's a part of the human experience. The material world, the world around us, demands a sense of honor from human beings because human beings see the power of God all around them in what has been created. Paul speaks of this very clearly and distinctly in Romans chapter 1. We know inherently that there is a God. We know inherently. Every human being inherently knows there is a God. Paul does not attempt to argue for the existence of God by showing evidence. He simply points to the man and says, you know there's a God. Because you're made in the image of God. and Because the creation shows the power and glory of God. The scriptures speak of God. And even Christ himself is the fullness of the revelation of God. Human beings know there's a God. And so we know that we are to worship. Now, our tendency, of course, is to worship ourselves. Reprobate men, men not born by the Spirit of God, will worship themselves. They will turn inward. Because in the life of any given man, what's the most important thing to that man? Well, himself. If he's not been born by the Spirit of God, the only thing he has that's valuable is himself. And so worship is ascribing worth to God because we have been created as worshiping beings. God created us for the purpose of worshiping him. In the creation mandate of Genesis 1.28 to 2.3, that creation mandate was for humanity to honor God as the creature formed in his image. And Jesus himself expressly notes, you remember in John chapter 4, when he's talking to the woman at the well, that God is seeking true worshipers. And that they will worship in spirit and in truth. And that he, Jesus, will be the means by which those who know God will worship through him. He expressly notes this. Thus, for the believer, all of life is to be for the purpose of glorifying God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, first question. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of our existence? Why are we here? To glorify God. 
and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose. We are, to, we are worshiping beings and we are to worship. And so for the believer, worship is central to the Christian life. Worship is central to the Christian life. Through a day-to-day focus on Jesus Christ, number one, through a day-to-day focus on him, through a, com- a commitment to him all day, every day, and also through the gathering with other believers in the specific corporate congregational act of worship, coming together to worship him. This is the essence of the concept of ecclesia, called out of the world and called into the church. Because if you're called out of something, you're called into something. And so you're called into the church and you're called in to join together with others who have been formed in the same image as you to worship the one who has drawn you out. And this is what Christian worship is all about. So as we've already noticed, the concept of church, the concept of the ecclesia implies this idea for us. The very essence of the Christian faith then assumes that believers will gather themselves together, participating in the communal life of the church. And we see this visualized, don't we, almost immediately after Pentecost, after Peter preaches that great sermon and thousands come to faith, immediately they begin to gather together. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, they immediately begin gathering together for the purpose of teaching Sitting of the Apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, etc. Right there in front of us. So worship, gathered worship, has been the locus of the faith. The New Testament writers assume this to be the case amongst the churches they established. There's an assertion by all of the New Testament biblical writers that there is a sense of the gathering together in the church for worship. Our God is a God of order. He's a God of order. Our God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God who just kind of throws and sees what sticks. No, our God is a God of order who purposes each thing. When he speaks, what he speaks comes into existence. But it's specific and orderly and designed according to his purposes. And more importantly, it accomplishes what he purposes it to accomplish. So when our God orders, when our God does, when our God speaks, when he decrees, it comes to pass in an orderly fashion. And so that principle must be applied to the idea of worship. Worship, which is the chief locus of the faith, should, by definition, be orderly. It should be structured. And more importantly... It should be defined by him. If God is seeking for us to worship and draws us out of the world to come together as those who worship in spirit and in truth, and our God is an orderly God, then the obvious conclusion is that what we do in worship should be defined by him. And where do we find that definition? We find it in the word of God. We find it in the scriptures. Now, that principle I just described is something we call the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle asserts that God has established worship to be accomplished according to a certain pattern which he himself has revealed. 
The regulative principle says that what we do in worship is commanded in the word of God and we do it. Because our God, who is the one being worshipped, says, do this. Now, that shouldn't be that hard for people to grasp. The Old Testament sacrificial system, right, is built on the reality that the people were told by God, do this. This is what you do. And we know, of course, that when they failed to do that, then God cast them away and said, okay, off you go to exile. If you will not worship me according to the pattern that I have set before you, if you will not do what I have told you to do, what I've commanded you, then I will cast you away. You know, when, when, when Moses was told by God, build me a tabernacle, Moses didn't say, all right, I'm going to get together, co- together a committee and we're going to try to figure out how this is going to look, how big it's going to be, and so forth. No. God came and says, build me a tabernacle, and here's what it's going to look like. And he gave every single detail of that tabernacle. How big it was to be, how the curtains were to be constructed, what the rings and all the parts on the inter- Everything was defined very, very clearly and specifically. Why? Because God is a God of order, and when we worship him, we worship according to what he has ordained for us to do. Everything else, every other kind of worship would in fact not be worship because it's basically coming before God and saying, I wish to worship you, but I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. And God says, well, then you're really not honoring me. You're honoring yourself. You're doing what you want to do, not what I want. True worship is based on the design that God has given to us. And so we believe in a regulative principle of Scripture. We do, not, we do not embrace what too many embrace today that, well, if the Bible doesn't prohibit it, then we're, we're, we're free to do it. You know, if the Bible doesn't specifically say, you know, do not dance in the worship service, then, then we're free to do that. And there are many who have taken up that position. Well, God doesn't say we can't do it. Yeah, well, well, God doesn't say that you should drive your car through the worship service either in his word, but that seems rather foolish, doesn't it? Okay, the regulative principle of scripture is a, is, is a basic biblical tenet which flows out of the very nature of God himself, and so we should form our worship around elements clearly expressed in the New Testament. Those given either by explicit command or by clear implication from the teaching passages of the New Testament. Now, all right, what should those elements be? All right, if we're talking about a regulated principle and an order, right, what should those elements be? All right, so let's talk about that. By definition, if you're going to talk about elements, then one of them would be considered the most important, don't you think? I mean, if you have a whole bunch of things you're supposed to do, then probably one of them is the most important thing out of that list you're supposed to do. Okay, so what is the most important thing that should happen in the worship of God? And the answer is the preaching of the Word of God. Now, what I just said is extraordinarily controversial in many churches. In many churches, worship is not defined by the preaching of the Word of God. It's defined by something else. But in the New Testament, it is obvious that in in worship, the primacy 
of worship is the preaching of the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this, starting the first verse. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Okay, that's a command, right? I charge you. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So Paul is saying, I'm charging you in the full authority of Jesus himself. The head of the church, the very essence of the faith, right? I'm charging you in his name. And here's what he says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready when people want to hear you preach and be ready when they don't want to hear you preach. Preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Take this preaching to your people. Affect them by it with complete patience and teaching. Preaching takes the word of God and teaches the people its content and then takes that teaching and applies it into their lives, rebukes them for their sin, reproves them for that which they've gone astray and guides them along the way in their lives. Paul goes on to say, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So why is preaching the most important aspect of worship? I mean, if, you, if I were sitting in your place, I'd ask that question. Okay, preacher, you say that preaching is the most important thing. But you're a preacher, so that's why you have to say that, Right? Okay, why is preaching the most important aspect of worship? And, and, I, and I ask that <coughs> in contrast to the sense in many churches in which everything else is considered more important. In many American churches, the many American churches, they have a position, uh, a staff position usually, sometimes an eldership position, uh, at which they call the worship leader, the worship leader. I don't know if you have that here in, in uh, Kenya or not, but in America, a lot of churches have something which we call a worship leader. And when people hear the term worship leader, they immediately associate it with music, singing. Their immediate reaction is to say, oh, a worship leader. Oh, I know what that is. That's singing. Okay? Now, you'll notice, you'll notice I'm, a- I'm answering the question in, In contrast to that, the answer to why it is that preaching is the primary element of worship is because it is commanded so explicitly. Paul makes it clear that he considers spiritual maturity to be the substance of the Christian faith in sanctification. And the means by which that occurs is through a steady diet of biblical preaching. As I said earlier in Acts chapter 2, the first thing that the new converts did to Christianity after Peter preached a sermon is they sat under the apostles' teaching. It's mentioned explicitly there. Paul's epistles, all of his epistles, are clear doctrinal and theological expositions of Scripture. 
He writes, here's what the scripture says. And the very essence of what it means to be a pastor, or more important, more specifically, a pa- a, an elder, is to preach faithfully, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. Remember I said in the last sermon that the, that the primary job of an elder is to teach... Well, if the primary job of an elder is to teach, then by extension, the primary element of worship is to be the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. To be truly Bible-based and Bible-saturated is to be centered around truth. And to adhere to sola scriptura, that scripture alone, implies that preaching must be the primary substance of Christian worship. Now, what do I mean by preaching? Okay, What do I mean by preaching? What should be included in preaching? Now again, there are many things about the church in the world, particularly in the West, that are troubling. One of them, of course, being that music is the primary element of worship. But the re- one of the really troubling matters in the essence of, of the church is that much of what calls itself preaching is not preaching at all. In many so-called churches, the preaching is really more a matter of concentrating the people's attention on themselves. That the messages are primarily about the listener rather than about Christ. In fact, I've said this, I've said this now for many years and I believe it's true. You could walk into the typical church in Western Christianity, the United States, for example, typical church, take the pulpit out, if they even have one, and just put a big mirror right here. Just put a big mirror. Because when the people come to the church, in most of these kinds of churches, what they're doing is they're just standing, sitting there and listening and saying, tell me something about me because I want to love me. It's not about God. It's about themselves. Several years ago, they came out with a list of the most influential preachers in America. And at the top of that list was a man by the name of Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen preaches, preaches, okay, to a church of roughly 20,000 people every Sunday. They bought us a, a former basketball stadium and converted it to a church. And this man now preaches to 20,000 people. But every single one of his messages, every single one, is basically this. God loves you and wants you to be happy. And here's how he's going to help you to be happy. He doesn't use the Bible at all. He, he basically just gives them platitudes. He pats them on the head and said, Oh, God just loves you. Oh, I know you're having trouble, but just... It'll be okay, brother. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. And he just gives counseling, therapy sessions to his audience. Now, he's one man, but there are many thousands of preachers that that's what they are doing. That's not preaching. Okay? It's not. Preaching, as it's defined by the Apostle Paul, 
It's not about making people feel better about themselves. Preaching is about bringing the Word of God to bear against the lies of those who are listening. To teach them the whole counsel of God and then to apply that into their lives so that the pursuit is not the pursuit of happiness, but rather the pursuit of holiness. And that's a massive difference. Because the pursuit of happiness is all about you. The pursuit of holiness is all about Christ. Preaching is about Scripture. In our circles, we call it expository preaching. Expository preaching means to expose the text, to bring forth the context of the content of the text to the audience. Open the Bible, read a passage of Scripture, and explain it to the people. What does this mean? What is God saying here? In other words, the task of the preacher is not to come and say, well, this is what I think, or this is my opinion, or this is what I think would be helpful and useful from this text. No. It's to take out a passage of Scripture and to read that text, to understand that text as it appears in its original languages and bring the message that God intended from that text into the lives of the people. That is the biblical definition of preaching. That's what Paul is assuming when he tells Timothy to preach the word. He's not saying preach the latest health, wealth, and happiness uh, methodologies. No. He's saying go to the text, preach that text. And sometimes that's going to mean preaching texts that are very, very hard. Preaching texts that are going to anger the people of the congregation because they don't want to be confronted in this place or that place in their lives. That's why Paul says, listen, there's going to come a time when men aren't going to want sound teaching anymore. No, no, they're going to want to surround themselves with men who are going to tickle their ears, right? And what does that mean? It means they're going to tell them what they want to hear. Just tell me what I want to hear, Pastor. Don't, don't tell me what God says. Tell me what I want to hear. Well, that's not preaching. Preaching is tell the people what God says in his word. And I would personally, my opinion, is that a preacher should do systematic expository preaching. And what I mean by systematic expository preaching is preach through the Bible. Now, I realize there's times when it's necessary to, you know, talk about a, a topic, a subject, like we're doing right now. I'm doing a, what you would call a topical sermon. I'm, I'm bringing to you a sermon uh, about this topic. I'm not exegeting a text, you'll see, right? So I'm doing what's called a topical sermon. But what I would highly recommend for the expository preacher, and this is how I do it, I think Brother Kerry does it this way as well, Walk through a book of the Bible. Start in the first verse of the first chapter of that book and then go to the second verse and the third verse and the fourth verse and go all the way through the book teaching the entirety of what that book is about. And you know, if you do that, here's a, here's a principle to think about. You will not be allowed to skip the parts that are hard. 
You won't be allowed to skip the parts that you're hard. You're not going to be able to walk into your congregation one day and say, well, I know we've been working through the book of Ephesians and we're up to chapter 2, but there's some verses here in this section that I think are kind of hard, and I'm not really sure that you want to hear them, so we're going to kind of skip over them and go to the next one. And if your congregation is at all faithful to the preaching of the Word of God, they'll go, ah, preacher, ah, 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 no, 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 preach that. And your response might be, well, you're not going to like it but systematic expository preaching keeps your people grounded in the Word of God. So the primary element of worship, the primary thing we do in worship is the preaching of the Word of God. The worship services in faithful Christian churches should be centered around a steady diet of the preaching of the Word of God. Do your worship services in such a way that you put preaching as the primary element and everybody knows it and communicate to them that the Bible is the most important thing in their lives. The most important thing in their lives. Let me put it to you like this. If you preach on a Sunday morning a one hour sermon. <laughs> what? Okay. But if you take one hour of their, and you preach for an hour, how much of the life of your people have you consumed in doing so? There's 168 hours in a week. You take one out of the 168 hours of that week. One out of 168. That's less than one half of 1% of their lives. In other words, 99.5% of their lives is not sitting under your preaching. Only about 0.5% is. So here's the thing. If they're going to give you that hour, use it well. Don't waste it. Preach the Word of God to them. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time in theirs. Right? Most important thing we do in worship is the preaching of the Word of God. And let me just add this before we move on to the next elements, and that's this. All the elements that are about to come that we're talking about lead to and elevate the importance of preaching. Okay, let me say that again. All of the other elements we're going to discuss here should be designed in such a way that they lead to and elevate the importance of the preached word in your worship services. All right? So what are these other elements? So if there's a primary element, there are probably some important elements, right? Things that you ought to do also. Number one. So this would be number two on the list. Primary one being preaching. Number two, the public reading of Scripture. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is reading the Bible out loud in the presence of the people. Reading the Bible, parts of it. They can't read the whole Bible in every worship service, right? But you can read parts of it. Again, if worship is to be Bible-based and Bible-saturated, then a time of reading Scripture should be a part of every worship service. Paul appears to be quite explicit about this in 1 Timothy 4.13 when he tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. 
And this is more, by the way, than just the pastor reading his text before he preaches from it, okay? Now, in many churches, that's the only time in the worship service that the Bible's ever read. The pastor stands up and says, okay, today I'm working on, on this book and this verse, and we're going to... And he reads it, and that's it. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something distinct from preaching. This, in this case, is the actual reading of Scripture itself. Specifically, what I would say is specifically, the careful reading by an elder of a significant text of Scripture. An elder. In our church, we allow deacons to do it as well. But we're putting men who have been set aside to leadership, and we're saying to them, okay, John, read Judges chapter 11 this morning. And so John comes and he takes out his Bible and he reads out loud to the people who sit and listen to him or follow along in their own Bibles, Judges chapter 11. If you believe that the Bible's important, then wouldn't you make it a significant part of the worship service itself? I mean, if, if you believe that, that God's word is supreme in terms of the life of the believer, then wouldn't you want to make sure that the believer is actually hearing the Word of God? Look, there may be a lot of people coming to your worship services <coughs> who've had very busy lives over the course of the week, and they, they came to a week where they just didn't have time to sit down and, and really read text. You would hope that they would have a devotional time, a quiet time in the Word of God for themselves. You would certainly hope that. But there's very reasonable and very possible that you have people that have not really had any time but there in your worship service, what do you do? Okay, everybody just listen now. Here's the Word of God. So everybody gets a chance to hear the Word, <coughs> to read it. And let, let me, another val, value to this is it makes sure that the whole Bible is important to the congregation. Now, some churches do this differently. I know there's some churches that just read certain parts of Scripture. But at Grace Fellowship Baptist Church... We are in the process of reading the entire Bible. We started in Genesis chapter 1. We read one chapter a week. And so last week it was, let's see, where are we? We're in Judges. So it was Judges, late in the book of Judges. We'll be getting on to Ruth shortly. So we're working our way through each book, chapter by chapter by chapter. Now it'll probably take, I don't know how many years it'll take. How many chapters are there in the Bible? Okay, so it's going to take a few years. It's going to take like five years to do that. 1,100? 360 by 50. Okay, it's going to take a it's going to take a while. Who cares? Who cares how long it takes? Right? That's not the point of it. The point isn't to read the whole Bible. The point is to bring the reading of the scripture to the people. And it also helps to introduce some rather obscure passages. See, when we read, we don't skip over those passages that are full of names. You know, reading through the book of Numbers and you get to those chapters where it's just a whole load of names and everybody's like, and most people you will notice will just skip those even if they're doing their own personal reading through the Bible, right? They'll get to Matthew chapter one, they'll go, ah, that's just a genealogy and they move on. No, if God superintended for that genealogy to be included, then we should know what it says. At least we should read it. Now, in that case, we usually call upon somebody who can read all those names and get the pronunciations right, you know. So I do spend a great deal of the time in the rotation reading because of the names issue. 23 years. 23 years, okay. So in other words, 
it's important to have your people understand how important the Word of God is. And if you're reading through the Word, then you will demonstrate that. Okay? So number one, preaching. Number two, the public reading of Scripture. And you'll notice that those two are the two given specifically to Timothy. Paul writes to this man serving at the church of Ephesus, and he says, these are the two things I want you to do. But he also says another to him in 1 Timothy 2.8. And the third element is prayer. Prayer. Again, if worship is to be built around authentic communication, then coming before God as a congregation in prayer is an essential part of what it means to worship God. We should want to seek God. To consider worship as an audience with the king. We've walked into the presence of a king and we should come before him to speak to him. To speak to him. Now, when we say prayer, again, I don't mean just a quick little prayer before the sermon or, you know, a quick little prayer before the offering or a quick little prayer here or there along the way. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about devoted prayer, okay? So what I mean by devoted prayer is I mean prayer that's explicitly set aside as a part of the worship service, a purposed part of the worship service. In some circles, we would call it pastoral prayer. Pastoral prayer meaning the elder. doesn't have to be the elder that preaches. It certainly could be, but any of the elders. To come and stand before the congregation and lift that congregation to the Lord in prayer. We have a pastoral prayer in our worship services each week. And I do that as part of my responsibility in the worship service. Sometimes that prayer is 10, 15 minutes in length. Bringing the people before the Lord. Listening to them. Bringing their needs. Praying for God's mercies. And so on and so on. Again, we are worshiping. We are coming before God. We're speaking to Him. We want him to speak to us through the word, through the preaching and the public reading of scripture. We should therefore also want to speak to him. And we will then designate someone out of the congregation to go before the Lord on behalf of the people just as Ezra did in his day. Now there's a number of other, as I said, there's a number of other places where we'll pray and those are important. But there should be concentrated and specific prayer in a worship service. So you walk into a room on a Sunday morning to worship. And you know as you walk in that you're going to hear the word, you're going to hear the scriptures, you're going to hear the word through preaching, you're going to hear the scriptures read, you're going to hear prayer, which you're going to participate in. But then we come to number four. And you'll notice where I've put this. Number four. Congregational singing. Congregational singing. Now again, Paul is, a, is clear, Ephesians 5.19, that we should be explicit about this when he says that we should address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But our singing should be of a purpose. And what is that purpose to be? Now, you should have already figured it out. If the preaching of the word is to bring us into an understanding of God, 
And if the public reading of Scripture is to bring us into greater understanding of what he has said, and prayer is to bring us into the presence of the living God, those three things all have one primary focus, and that's on him, his glory, his honor, his power, his majesty. That's the idea of worship. So by definition, singing should be the same. Congregational singing needs to be singing that expresses a proper theological view of God. Again, in the West, I don't know if you have this problem here, maybe you do, but so much of the worship music, and I'm going to put that in quotes, so much of the worship music that is used in churches, particularly large churches, is music that is utterly self-focused. It's all about us. I want to worship you. I want to worship you. I want to worship you. And my response is, get on with it! Why are you singing about yourself? The lyrics of the music along with the musicality and the hymnody that goes along with it should be such that it glorifies and elevates God over ourselves. One example is those who set the psalms themselves to music. As Paul himself says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he's sort of assuming we're going to be singing the things, right? I think it was last, was it last night, Dominic, that we sang, at, didn't we sing a hymn that was specifically a psalm set to, set to music? Yeah. Psalm 115, if I remember right, right? Yeah. Singing is important. But singing can be, and music can be extraordinarily dangerous because music is a deep and integral part of what it means to be human. We are the only creatures on this planet who make music, aren't we? It's a part of the Imago Dei. Music is a part of us. I could start humming some familiar tune to you and when this sermon is over and you walk out, you'll be humming that in your head. You know, I could stick something in your head with that, right? And you know how, e how much easier it is to memorize something if you put it to music, right? You, you take something, you put it to music and then you sing it and suddenly you can remember the lyrics. I remember all the songs of the 70s the lyrics of all the songs of the 1970s because those were the songs that I grew up with on the radio. I'm not particularly proud of that fact, but, but it's because the music put the words in my head. See the problem? The problem is if we're not very, very careful with our singing, we're going to sing things that are going to be stuck in our minds and in our hearts because music is a powerful instrument to get them there. And if we're not very careful about putting rich theological content into our singing, we're going to wind up importing into ourselves things that are not consistent with God, what God has revealed. Music is fundamental, and because music is very powerful in both emotional and intellectual life, the selection of hymns and songs and s songs and spiritual songs used in worship should be based almost entirely on their theological, lyrical content. Not the tune, not the tune, the lyrics. 
We are expressing to God in song, in worship. We are expressing to God in song what we believe about Him. We better say that well. So singing is an important part of the worship service. I agree with that. Yes, we should sing, and we should sing our hearts out. And we should, we should, we should make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I can't sing. My wife says I can sing, but I don't hear it. I don't see it. But my goal isn't to make perfect melody before the Lord. My goal is to simply make a joyful noise. It is the Spirit of God is going to take that and perfect it in the ear of the Father. So sing with gusto, but sing that which you'd actually want to say to God if you were looking at him. If you're standing in front of God, if you're standing in front of Christ on his throne, and he said, pick a hymn that you want to sing to me, sing the kinds of hymns that you would sing to him directly. As I said, so much of worship is all about focused on us now in the West in particular and probably here in Kenya as well. So much of the worship is all centered upon ourselves. Preaching that's therapeutic. No need for prayer. No need for Bible reading because it's all about us. It's not about God. So let's, let's, spend, let's spend 80% of our worship services singing songs about ourselves and then let's let a preacher finish that up by patting us on the head and saying, hey, it's going to be great. Sing to the Lord of him. So the primary element is preaching, and the important elements then are the public reading of scripture, prayer, and congregational singing. We'll just close with this. There are a couple of optional matters of worship I'll include here. Okay. First, as Kerry mentioned earlier in his message, the ordinances two ordinances of the church that we have, the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, both one mentioned in Matthew 28, the other in 1 Corinthians 11. Now these would be included in the worship service as appropriate. Now what I mean by that is this. You can't do a baptism if you don't have a baptismal candidate, right? So it would be, you couldn't put a baptism in every worship service. You couldn't demand it because you don't have a candidate necessarily. Now, I realize if you're, you know, if you're coercing people to come to faith so that you can get the baptism into the worship service every Sunday, you're probably making a much larger problem, a much larger error, right? Okay, so it is a function of worship. It is a function of the gathering of the people of God to see the candidate who testifies to his new faith in Christ, but you're probably not going to be able to do that all the time. But it is a function of worship in an optional sense of the word. The same thing is true at the Lord's Supper. There's much debate about how often the Lord's Supper ought to be included. There are some churches who believe that it should be included every week because that seems to be the the practice of the early church. There are others who are less inclined to that. And as Baptists, we've allowed you to go your own way on that. I come out of a Roman Catholic background where the Lord's Supper, quote-unquote the Eucharist, is included every week and is the very center of that service. Well, here's what I can tell you. After 20 years of being a Roman Catholic and doing that every Sunday, I was pretty much sick of it. It meant nothing to me. You know, they say absence makes the heart grow grow fonder. It's actually better absence makes the heart grow wander. So there's a balance, I suppose, if you want to do the Lord's Supper every week, okay, Certainly you can do that. There's nothing against that in Scripture. Clearly the ordinance 
is included in Scripture as an as a command of the Lord. So yes, it is a commanded part of the regulative principle in worship. But how often you wish to do that, we'll leave that to your conscience. And there's good arguments on both sides of that. But one final optional matter, and I, I put in this in the optional category because there's, there's a sense in which this is, for some, for some, something that is outside of the issue of tithes, uh, the outside of the issue of, of worship services. In fact, um, Conrad, in his book, has a tendency to make this more optional. Okay, that's his opinion. I'm inclined to not go that direction, but I'm going to include it here. And more specifically, the issue of giving in worship, tithes and offerings. I'm going to talk about money in my next sermon, specifically tomorrow morning. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that. But if you are inclined to believe that the regulative principle demands that you bring your tithes and offerings to the Lord, and I'm inclined to believe that, then that would be a part of the worship the giving of tithes and offerings. And I think there's an excellent Old Testament precedent that can be made here in the terms of the people coming together and giving of their offerings and their tithes unto the Lord. Okay. Now, again, there are some who have suggested that's not necessarily the case, and they choose not to include tithes and offerings in the worship service itself. There are some churches that I've known in reform circles that will just place a box outside, and then the people just put their monies in as they come. But what's interesting to me is they put it in the box when they come. So they're coming to the church for worship, and then they're bringing their tithes and their offerings. And so in a sense, it isn't really an optional thing at all. They're doing it as a part of worship. I think most churches would probably say that is the case. But I think what Conrad does is kind of place it down here in this category because he doesn't see it at the same level as these other elements. So he and I would disagree slightly on that particular issue. Okay? But nonetheless, this is what biblical worship ought to look like. When we gather together as the saints to worship our God, what should we be doing? We should be hearing from the Lord in both the preaching and reading of Scripture. We should be offering back to Him our prayers, and we should be singing back to Him our testimony to His goodness and His great greatness. And if we do those things, we will be worshiping in spirit and in truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again for allowing us to consider another aspect of the local church and what it means to be a local church. Thank you that you have established all kinds of local churches, little congregations of people throughout the world, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, as you have called your own elect out of the world, you have called them to the church. And they have been called to gather together to worship you. So help us, O Lord, to worship you rightly, the way that you have commanded us to worship you. We do not wish to be impudent and worship you in ways that are not consistent with who you are or what you've commanded, for that would be, that would be useless to us. You, O Lord, have indicated what the tabernacle ought to look like. So help us to form it in the way that you have ordained. Thank you for this time together today, and thank you for uh, what we have heard. And may it truly 
go out from this place with power by your spirit. I ask in Christ's name. Amen.